Hello and welcome back to another episode of Sully Sports Hub. Today, we're going to do a little college football playoff semifinals recap. We're going to look ahead to the national championship a little bit towards the end of this episode as well. So let's dive right in. We're going to start with the Michigan TCU game, uh, the early game in the afternoon. Um, First, I think there's a lot of significance to this game that before you even get into the X's and O's, before you get into the results of the game, the the significance of this game from the beginning is that TCU comes in as a team that people have on fraud watch, right? There's They come in as the team like the Michigan States, like the Washingtons, like the Cincinnati's, like the Notre Dames. They come in as a team that people are looking and saying, I'm not convinced this team is good. And for somewhat good reason, honestly. I mean, they played a lot of close games throughout the regular season. They come off a loss in their conference championship game. Um, I will say going in, I, I, I don't think I said this on Clay's podcast that was a couple weeks out before the games. I thought TCU and Ohio State were both going to win. I was obviously wrong about that. Um, I thought they had a little more chance, but a lot of people I think expected TCU to get exposed in this game. And so the way the game started I think surprised a lot of people and the result of the game as well, because when you have these types of teams, these teams that we don't really expect uh, to, to have any chance to win a playoff game, to win a national championship, most of the time, these semifinal games are not close, even with pretty good teams. I mean, 11 of the 14 semifinal games going into this weekend had been decided by double digits. And a lot of those were completely uncompetitive. So at the start of this game, and we, let's go ahead and dive into kind of what happened in this game to get to our result. The start of this game was was very surprising and I think made a lot of people realize, okay, this is going to be a battle. So to start off, Michigan comes out, they get the ball. Immediately you see, so TCU runs a 3-3-5 defense. Basically the, what I want you to take away from that is they run three down linemen. They have a lot more guys in open space, a lot more uh, guys that can hopefully defend the pass if they have more DBs on the field in their nickel package. But what you saw early on was TCU was selling out for the run in this package. Even with the three down linemen, they were having they were firing guys through gaps. They were coming after the run against Michigan. But Michigan, on the first play of the game, they get a 50-yard run, right? So it looks like, okay, Michigan's going to do the same thing it did to Ohio State. But from that point on, TCU did a great job defending the run. From that point on, I think the next 19 runs were like one yard a carry for Michigan. And we'll get into some more of the numbers later, but you could tell they were not very afraid of JJ McCarthy early on. And they get down into the red zone on this first drive. And immediately you see, I think one of the biggest things that JJ struggled with throughout this game, the Michigan quarterback on this third down, they run a little clear out play on the left side. Two of their receivers are running out routes. They're clearing out the defensive backs. They're running Ronnie bell under them for a slant route. TCU brings six guys at JJ. They bring he's he's facing pressure. But if he sees this, if he understands what the defense is doing here, if he understands the covers they're in, he would know, okay, I'm gonna have Ronnie Bell on this slant. I just have to hang in here and make this throw. And if you go back and watch the play, you'll see he if you slow it down, he has time to make this read and make this throw. Instead, and if he makes the throw, it's probably a touchdown. Instead, he, he immediately turns around, starts running backwards. He actually makes a pretty good play and almost turns it into a touchdown, but gets pushed out of bounds right before the before he hits the goal line. The next play, that's the failed Philly special, and we'll talk about that a little bit. But what you saw from this play, and I think what you see from most of the game with him, is that 
he was very erratic. It, it was very easy to startle him in the pocket. And as a result, when things were clean, when guys were wide open downfield, he was able to make those throws, but he really struggled to get in rhythm. And I think he was a little antsy in the pocket and just struggled to read things out in this game. And TCU's defense did a great job of putting him in uncomfortable positions. And they did that early on on this play. The fourth down play, like I mentioned, was the failed Philly special. We're going to talk a lot about play action with Michigan in this recap because I think it was just such a glaring thing that they failed to take advantage of. But again here, it was getting a little cute. Um, They got, I think they expected to get man coverage when they ran this play. They got zone instead. So the DB, um, after they bring the receiver in motion, is just waiting there for McCarthy uh, after the Philly special, you know, whatever. It's not, not, I didn't love the play call, but didn't work out. Didn't get the look you wanted. The bigger thing to me from this series is McCarthy had the third down touchdown if he hangs in the pocket and makes the throw. And that's something we'll talk about with Max Duggan that he did all game. So then, you know, McCarthy later earlier in the game, he misses the out route. Uh, That's the first pick six of the game. There's a house call. There's another mistake that he makes where, yeah, TCU is doing great things to make him uncomfortable, but you saw when when pressure was put on him in this game, he really struggled, and they were unafraid to come after him, especially because I think TCU knew, you know, sometimes we're going to get beat if we blitz. We're going to we're going to give up a big play, but a lot of the times he's going to make a mistake. He's not going to see the open guy, and as a result, we think we're going to win that way more times than not. And TCU really uh, benefited early in this game from playing their three down linemen and shooting those gaps, and it helped them defend in the run game as well. Now, I think you saw a counter from this a little bit from Michigan. Michigan started to spread spread it out a little more, especially once they got down. They realized, you know, we're going to have to play more up-tempo. We're going to have to spread it out a little more. I think that put a lot more stress on this TCU defense because of the fact that TCU early was devoting so many resources towards stopping the run, but Michigan was only running, you know, maybe one or two guys, one or two receivers out in a route concept at a time. So, you know, you have a couple of guys recover, they get back, they make that play. Later on, when, when Michigan was having, you know, three or four receivers get out in the route concept, it was a lot more difficult for TCU to defend both the run and the pass. So I think that was an adjustment that Michigan made that was effective, but, you know, it was a little bit too little too late. And, and there's they Michigan did a pretty good job later of making TCU second level much more concerned about the passing game. And, and the explosive play action was there for Michigan. We'll, we'll get into some numbers about that later that honestly reflect pretty poorly on Michigan's offensive play calling. But that was there for them. Uh, and the run game certainly is a big factor of that. You could tell TCU was very concerned about stopping the run. And so Michigan benefited from that in this game. But the most surprising group to me watching this game back was the TCU offensive line. Uh, their run game was very impressive, and it was better than Michigan's throughout this game, and the numbers bear that out. Uh, they were able to get a push. Uh, the TCU's running backs did a great job. They were patient. They they found the right holes. But that was something that I don't think anyone really expected to happen coming into this game. I think most people thought that Duggan would just have to have a otherworldly performance to keep up with Michigan. And I would argue Duggan played very well, but his numbers don't necessarily reflect that. The, the run game numbers for Uh, for TCU are actually what looked like a dominant performance. And the offensive line was a big part of that for them. Um, But with Duggan, the first, the first thing you notice with him is just, I think he, he is a little bit more than people realized. And I was probably one of these people that didn't take him as seriously as I should have. He drove the ball into zones very well. He can throw the ball down the field. He's got a pretty talented arm. This is not just a scrambling quarterback, even though he does have that in his bag. 
he made consistently correct decisions. And especially when you contrast that with McCarthy, Duggan was always looking in the right places. Even on his two interceptions, I would argue neither of those were really his fault. I think those were both pretty good throws. So Duggan, Duggan was amazing. He was consistently right. He put TCU in great positions to win throughout this entire game. And to me, one of the biggest differences in this game when you watch quarterback versus quarterback was Duggan responded to pressure. He stepped up in the pocket. He was able to get out and run when he needed to. And and the biggest thing that you notice with Duggan is the fadeaway throws. When he saw the blitz coming, he was able to take a couple steps back, see a receiver open and make that throw, whereas McCarthy would turn his back to the rush and just start running all over the place. And, And a lot of quarterbacks have to do that. And McCarthy is athletic enough where he can get away with that sometimes. But Duggan was able to make some big plays because of the fact that he was able to be comfortable in the pocket and make throws, throws, make those types of throws when needed. Again, talking about McCarthy, I think the inaccuracy for him really hurt Michigan in the short game. Um, they against TCU, Michigan was four for ten on short throws for thirty-one yards and two interceptions. Both of those were pick sixes. So McCarthy really struggled to find his short rhythm. I think that hurt Michigan a lot because they had the deep pass game, they had the run game, but the run game wasn't that great. So really all Michigan had in this game was the explosive passing game to rely on. And when you've only got one thing to go to, it's a lot tougher to execute as an offense. I mean, Michigan was five for seven on deep passes for 203 yards. So when they aired it out, they were very effective, but you know, I mean, you're you're not going to be able to make that happen every play. You're not going to have a guy open downfield all the time. So the, the short passing for McCarthy, you know, the numbers bared out, but he was very inaccurate there. And I just overall had a pretty poor game on that front. But another thing that you really notice with TCU is Michigan did not break very many tackles. I mean, you're a college football team. You're going to give up some broken tackles because nobody in college football can tackle. But for a college football defense, TCU did a great job against Michigan making those tackles and preventing those three to four yard runs from turning into seven or eight yard runs. Um, but you did see Michigan, you know, get those explosive plays. A lot of them were more in the pass game. They also used that flea flicker. Um, all 11 players on TCU's defense were within 10 yards of the line of scrimmage on that flea flicker. So you could see Michigan was really exploiting the way TCU was having to play defense against the run game to make that happen. They hit the long touchdown on that one. But the biggest thing to me about Michigan's passing game that was disappointing in this game, again, was J.J. McCarthy, and especially how after the second interception, you could tell he came out pretty rattled. He missed an early check down throw to the running back on that drive. That really should have been made. I think any any good quarterback should make that throw. But Michigan did a pretty good job after the second interception of getting him involved in the run game. Uh, TCU came out in man coverage on that drive. McCarthy was able to break contain very easily, get a deep run down the field. They call a design run for him. He gets in the end zone. I think Michigan did a pretty good job there of getting McCarthy back involved in the game. Um, Later on, TCU, on the next drive, TCU almost breaks back-to-back rushing touchdowns. They they have a super long run where he gets out. The play before was a shoestring tackle. So at this point, TCU is gashing Michigan. Michigan cannot contain the run game. TCU scores on that drive to get up uh, 41-32. The biggest takeaway for me in this stretch of the game was that at this point, Michigan is able to score at at will. Um, they're doing whatever they want to on offense at this point, and they made some much-needed adjustments, but it was too little too late with the double pick sixes, with the struggles that they had running the ball. And then at this point, the defense was really struggling to get a stop. And even, even with the fumble that TCU has when they're up 41-30, you know, that's another one where Michigan's defense didn't really get a stop. They were just afforded an opportunity but now we get to the play of the game. 
Uh, 41-38, TCU's up. It's third down. Duggan drops back to pass. He faces pressure. Quinn Johnson comes across the field on an underneath route. As we mentioned before, Duggan hits the fadeaway throw. Johnson makes the catch behind the line of scrimmage on third and seven and turns it in to a huge explosive play, a 70-80 yard touchdown run for him. That is the play of the game. And I, I want to explain why. So a lot of times with these you know, questionable teams with these Michigan State, with these Washingtons, with these teams that get in the playoff that we have questions about. The biggest thing that they struggle with is when they get in to the playoff and they face these super talented teams, you know, Bama, whoever they're playing, Clemson, whatever, those guys have players that will just make huge plays in the moments that they need. But TCU, they they may not have the same depth of roster as Georgia, and we'll talk a little bit about that later. They have guys that can make the huge plays. They have their secondary is super talented. Quentin Johnson might be the best receiver in the country. I mean, he is six foot four. He's a good route runner. He's super explosive. And that's to me the play of this game because TCU's two best offensive players made a play against Michigan secondary. I, I don't think that Michigan really made any huge mistakes on that play. They got they got Johnson in a good matchup in one on one coverage, and he did what he was supposed to do. So. To me, when you're looking at the differences of, you know, what makes TCU different than these other teams, that's the difference is that this team had players that were on the level of Michigan. Was every single player on that level? Probably not, but their big time players made the plays that they needed to make, especially late in the game. Um, as, as the clock winds down here, speaking of the clock, I thought Michigan did a really poor job of clock management on that last drive before uh, well, the second to last drive when they scored the touchdown um, to cut the lead down late. They ran a lot of clock down. Um, they multiple times the the play clock got down under ten seconds when they were in the red zone trying to score with about five four minutes left in that game. You just can't do that, and I think that speaks to an issue of the way Michigan plays. And a lot of the times it doesn't really matter because they're so dominant because they're almost always the better team. But Michigan has not had to play in a way where they're behind, where they have to be fast, where they have to speed up because of the clock. And they're not really built to just drop back and throw the ball. And we saw that with J.J. McCarthy in that game. The play action was where he was more effective. So Michigan, I think, really struggled to operate in that way. And we know that's how you know that's how those kind of teams are. People have talked about, about that a lot with like the Ravens in the NFL. It's a similar way where they're based on that run game. So it's a little more difficult for them to come back. But I do think that's something that if I was, you know, a Michigan fan, I would hope that they improve on that a little bit. Even if it's not part of their core offense, working on a true drop back pass game is something that I think could help them, especially in these games where, you know, sometimes you are going to get behind. Sometimes your quarterback is going to throw a pick six and then you've got to respond. At the end of the game, the the second to last drive when TCU's got the ball, I think this is one of the things that epitomizes this game. TCU just ran the ball three times and they picked up a first down. I mean, if you had told me, you know, oh, TCU's got to run the ball three times, Going into this game, I would say, oh, yeah, Michigan's going to stop them easily. You know, they're definitely going to get the ball back. No, I mean, TCU, their offensive line, they won, and that was all that they needed. You know, by the time Michigan got the ball back, there was almost no time left, and they get the stop and they win. And the last thing uh, in the details here of this game, I thought that – I'm sure if you watch the game, you know what I'm talking about. On the fourth down, Michigan, you know, the fumble happens, Donovan Edwards gets the ball. It looks like there's a targeting hit there, and I thought it was targeting – 
I'm not going to pretend to understand the rules of targeting because about every single time that I think something's going to happen, the rules analyst will come on or the referee will come on and explain something that happened and it will be the opposite of what I expected. So I'm not going to pretend like I understand the rules, you know, on that. It, it seems like a lot of times we watch something that th- we think should be targeting or just feels like it should be targeting and it's not actually. But let's not pretend like Michigan was about to go down and score. That's really the take. That's really my only point from that is, you know, Michigan was not in a position. We already talked about their struggles in the, the true drop back pass game. They were not in a position where they were going to go down and score there. So yes, I, do I think it was targeting? I thought it was in the moment, but who knows? And let's not pretend that it cost them the game. All right, so let's get into some big picture stuff here. Uh, some of these things we already talked about a little bit. We'll hit in some numbers and then really big picture stuff for Michigan and TCU here. So first, just some numbers. TCU, 8.3 yards per carry on running back runs. Michigan, 4.5. And after the Edwards run, the first the first play of the game, right, where they hand it off to Edwards, he breaks it off for 53. After that play, 2.76 yards per carry for Michigan on running back runs. That, that, that discrepancy cannot happen. When that is the foundation of your offense, it's really hard to win games when that's not working. Uh, especially when your quarterback is not, you know, an elite Heisman level guy. Another, you know, number that stands out, Quentin Johnson, six receptions for 163 yards, touchdown 27.2 yards per catch. That's massive from one of your best players, from probably TCU's best player, to get those kind of explosive gains to keep up with Michigan because both passing games were explosive in this game. Both passing games averaged 16 yards per catch. Michigan threw the ball, was able to complete a lot more passes. But both offense passing games were pretty explosive when they got connected. And so for TCU to be able to get those big plays from Quentin Johnson, I thought was huge in order for them to match that side of the ball from Michigan. And if you watch the game, you know this, man, but Max Duggan's passing numbers just lie in this game. The two interceptions that he had already, I already mentioned, you know, those were pretty fraudulent, you know, not his fault, tipped passes, all that kind of stuff. He also just made some great plays under pressure. This was not easy for him at all. I mean, he was facing blitzes often. He was facing pressure. Um, guys were not wide open most of the game. He was making very difficult throws. I was really impressed from Max Duggan. And like, I, I think this is a game where you know NFL teams are going to be pretty impressed too. Is he going to be a first round pick? Like, probably not. But I, I I do think that this is a guy like I will at least have my eye on um, looking towards the draft. And the last thing with Michigan here. And this is probably the part that I just I just cannot wrap my head around this. So first, you know, Michigan has this kind of weird like co-offensive coordinator thing going on. It's kind of hard to know to even who to assign blame to with them. So I don't I'm not really calling out a specific person, but just this is just Michigan. Like this has to be figured out. So first of all, we talked about the the passing depth. We talked about McCarthy struggling short. Another way that he struggled, and this is not Michigan's fault really. This is McCarthy's fault. Facing pressure. J.J. McCarthy was 3-for-8 for 20 yards, 2.5 yards per attempt for a touchdown. Clean, he was 17-for-27, 323 yards, 12 yards per attempt. So first, you see, like, when things were right, he was very good, but he was not really able to create much stuff under pressure. And that's that's pretty normal, right? Like, you have to be a pretty good quarterback to be able to create under pressure. This was the biggest problem for Michigan here, is their play-action stats. So first, on play-action... In this game, they were five for seven for 151 yards, 22 yards per attempt and a touchdown. Well, that that's pretty good. That sounds that's that's amazing. Okay, non-play action passes: 15 for 28, 192 yards, seven yards per attempt, a touchdown, and two picks. Now you might be thinking, wow, you know what 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 went wrong with their non-play action passing game? 
How about you just call more than seven play action passes? Your entire offense is based upon this run game. You were getting 22 yards per attempt and you did it seven times. You pretty much never did it in the red zone when you were just running the ball up the middle into nothing and using trick plays on the Philly special. The, the biggest thing Michigan failed to do in this game was utilize the play action pass. It was there based on the scheme TCU was playing. Their 3-3-5 defense is naturally susceptible to these types of play action passes. The Michigan offense is entirely based around the play action pass. They needed it in the red zone. McCarthy was struggling to make plays by himself. The fact that they only called play action passes seven times, I think is probably the reason if you're looking for a reason why Michigan lost this game. I'm not going to pretend to be an expert in scheme. There could be potential reasons why they didn't call it more. I'm not saying that a specific play should have been run, but when you look at these efficiency numbers, it's obvious that they were underutilizing something that it should be a staple of this offense. It should be something that they use because it fits right in with the scheme that they like to run especially with how effective it was in this game specifically. So Michigan, I think if you're, you know, if you're a fan, I think that's got to be the thing that you're scratching your head about the most is why was this play action game not utilized more because it was there, it was available. And I I just, I'm speechless as to why it was not used more. And lastly, let's, before we jump into the Georgia Ohio state game, I want to talk a little bit about what people missed on TCU, because I think that's the biggest question that you come out of this game with is, you know, why were we wrong about this team? Or, well, I picked TCU, so I guess I shouldn't say we. Why were some people wrong about TCU? What made them think that they were just going to get killed again? So I want to point out a couple of things that I think make this team different. And first, it's Max Duggan's ability to create. He did not have to have things going perfectly for the TCU offense to get down the field. We saw it in the, in the Big 12 championship game. He runs five carries for 95 yards on the last drive to get them down the field to tie the game. He was, I mean, absolutely exhausted after that drive. Again, in the in the playoff game against Michigan, when there's pressure in his face, he's able to escape. He's able to go pick up big first downs on third and seven, third and eight. And he's able to make difficult throws. And that's just not normally the type of quarterbacking that we see from these teams that sneak into the playoffs. So I think that's a big difference. But as we talked about before, the biggest difference, and especially um, when you're facing teams in this more offensive-focused game now, Quentin Johnson is a dominant receiver. Quentin Johnson might have been the best player on the field in that game against Michigan. And when you have a weapon like that, if you can get him involved, I mean, everything else goes out the window at that point. When that guy has the ball, it doesn't matter how good the rest of the team is. And so the TCU did a great job of utilizing him. And I think the last thing that I, I did not fully factor in to this was Sonny Dykes had an awesome game plan. Their run game was great. I thought they called the defense pretty well, honestly. I mean, you're going to have to give up something against Michigan when you're the less talented team, but you could tell their scheme made McCarthy uncomfortable. It made him struggle, and they were able to take the run game away from Michigan, which is something that almost no one is able to do. But I think when you look back, they, they saw the Ohio State game, and they realized that this run game can be stopped. And if you think back to that Ohio State game, when the run game got going for Michigan, it was after they hit the deep balls. It was after they made the explosive plays, and Ohio State was really clawing back to try to get in this game. Well, TCU got up early, so they knew this this run game can be stopped. Now, we're going to give up some explosive plays, but 
we think that we can make McCarthy make a couple mistakes. And so I was really impressed with Sonny Dyke's game plan overall, his his coaching in general. I think, you know, for a first-year head coach to be able to take a team to the playoff when you look around and see what's going on at Florida or Miami or any of those schools that just brought in first-year head coaches, I mean, it's really difficult to get that to turn around that quickly, to establish a culture, to get those guys to buy in that were not recruited by you, like Max Duggan and Quentin Johnson, who both elected to stay at TCU. So overall, I mean, fantastic job by Sonny Dykes in this game plan, in in the culture he's built there, and the overall success that they have had this season. So that's the recap of the Michigan TCU game. I uh, I think that that was the the third quarter and the early fourth quarter was some of the most fun football you could ever watch. It was just back and forth. I mean, it felt like a team was scoring a touchdown about every 15 seconds that you would look up at the screen, but overall very entertaining game. Um, I do think TCU deserved to win this game. I thought they played better. Um, and I'm excited to see TCU face off against Georgia in the national championship. So I'm going to take a quick break. And right after this, we'll be right back with um, some discussion about the Georgia and Ohio state game. And then we'll end with a little bit of a preview for the national championship. All right, we're back from that quick break. Now we're going to get into the Ohio State-Georgia game and then a little bit of a national championship preview. So just like the TCU recap, we're going to go through kind of the game notes, stuff I noticed as I was watching. And then we're going to talk a little bit big picture about the game and then dive into the national championship with a little bit of Stetson Bennett talk mixed in there. So first, we start the game Stetson's not great at the start, um, but you could tell from the beginning he was decisive and he was mobile. And with Georgia, that's really all that they need from their quarterback position. They create enough open plays and they have enough open running lanes that if Bennett can at least do those two things, even if he makes some mistakes, the offense is usually going to be good enough uh, to, to get by. And that's what we saw early on with them um, on their first drive. Uh, on a third and one down in Ohio State territory, uh, Bennett had a read option. I think if he hands that off, it might be a touchdown. Um, it, it would have been a shoestring tackle. Instead, he keeps it. They lose five yards and they settle for a field goal. So a little bit of a sloppy start for him and the Georgia offense. But Ohio State takes control. And early on, the offense was humming. They they started to put C.J. Stroud in some deep drops. And it really helped him get some t- uh, more time against this Georgia pass rush that we know can be so dangerous. Um, What that requires is trust in his arm strength, trust in his mobility, and trust in his receiver's talent. And Ohio State certainly had all of those things going for them on Saturday night. Um, I I think that really helped him get in rhythm early. It allowed him time and ability to see guys get open and make throws that are not easy, but for a guy as accurate as him are throws that he can make. Um, He showed creativity early with his arm, and we'll talk a little bit more about his legs later. Um, Marvin Harrison Jr. was awesome until he got hurt. That guy is just so smooth for his size. Uh, When you hear them say he's 6'4", it's just really surprising because he he does not move like that. He's a very smooth route runner. Um, He's going to be a great player on Sundays someday. The next play that I want to highlight was in the second quarter. Uh, Ohio State's up 14-7, and it's the Stetson Bennett interception. Um, he feels pressure around the edge. It's first and 10. Bennett steps up quickly, and he just rushes the throw. It leads to a pick. Um, if you're noticing so far, you know Bennett 
did not have a very good first half. He did not have a very good first three quarters. But Georgia's talent is so good, can overcome so much, that it doesn't really matter. And it's so rare that you can say that. I mean, you think about even with um, some of the best teams of these past few years, past decade or so, Clemson has now struggled a little bit when they don't have their guy at quarterback. Alabama, you know, when they lost some of their guys, we saw the um, the year that Tua got hurt before Mac really stepped in and was great. They struggled with him. It's really hard to, without an elite quarterback to be a great team, but Georgia is able to do that. Um, and Bennett was elite towards the end of the game. We'll talk about that later, but early on, he really struggled. And on the other hand, Stroud really pushed the ball downfield outside the pocket. He was athletic enough to escape all of Georgia's five-star athletes. And honestly, this game is just going to make him really difficult to evaluate for the next level. Because I think going into this game, how I felt about him and how a lot of other people felt about him was, okay, this guy is super accurate. He throws with great anticipation timing. He has a great feel for the offense. He can move in the pocket. But when things break down, when guys aren't open, when the rush is getting to him, what is he able to do? And before this game, I really didn't feel like it was very much. But when you watch this game, you see he breaks contain. He makes throws on the run. He even runs for first downs. He ran for that huge gain towards the end of the game to set up what would have been the game-winning field goal. This game is going to make him a lot more difficult to evaluate because I think now you really have to ask yourself how much you trust him to be able to replicate what he did against this Georgia defense on a week-in, week-out basis at the next level. Uh, If he can do those types of things, he's going to be a really good quarterback because he has a lot of the -the in-the-pocket stuff mastered already. The question is, is he going to be more of a Jared Goff type guy or does he have that extra element in his game? Does he have that mobility where even if he's not, you know, a guy that is super mobile, can he be like a, you know, a Joe Burrow? Can he be like a guy that moves around a little bit more, um, but really relies on his anticipation, on his timing and his accuracy to make those plays? So I think that's a really interesting thing to watch with Stroud now leading into the draft, because I don't think that's something people expected going into this game. Uh, Later in the first half, you see, even with Bennett not being great through the air, Georgia was able to take advantage of his mobility to make it 21-21 to on the quarterback keeper for them. And the biggest thing that you notice you know, throughout this first half is just how well-oiled of a machine this Georgia offense is. In the other game recap, we talked about how Michigan really struggled, I thought, to find what worked for them best and stick with it. Everything works for Georgia. They have the play-action pass game down. They get the ball to their tight ends. They hit the receivers deep down the field. They get them involved in the wide receiver screen game and the reverse game. They run the ball extremely well. They get the ball to their running backs in the pass game. They're just, they do everything well. And because of that, you don't really know as a defense what you need to take away. There is nothing really to focus on. You just have to hope that eventually you get a couple stops and they make some mistakes. And it just makes them so difficult to defend, and it also allows them to not really be reliant on any specific thing. This is one of the most adaptable offenses in all of college football because they're so talented at every at every single position, and Todd Munkin does a great job of involving all of those players. Towards the end of the first half, Stroud again demonstrated his ability to throw with touch on the deep ball straight down the middle of the field. He had forever to stand in the pocket on that play. Um, Makes it 28-24 going into halftime. 
right before the half, Bennett almost throws another interception. He misses high on one of his receivers on third down. Again, you know, Kirby um, gets very nervous. You could tell, or I think it was second down because he gets pretty nervous, does not want to be um, taking any more chances at the end of the first half. And that recapped, that capped off a pretty rough first half for him. But again, I just told you the score was 28 to 24. This is not normal. You, it is not normal in a playoff game to get a bad first half from your quarterback and still score 24 points and be down four points at the half. But that's exactly what this Georgia team did. And that in itself is impressive. Um, as we get in the second half, you could tell, you know, Ryan Day was dialed in. The offensive line for Ohio State was amazing at this point. Stroud had some super clean pockets where he had forever to stand back there and throw. And even later on, you know, when Ohio State gets up 35-24, Stroud on third and 16 is dropping back in his own end zone. So they're up 11 here. And he steps up in the pocket and he tries to make this throw as he's getting destroyed by a Georgia defensive lineman to layer it to Marvin Harrison Jr. In between two defenders to throw like 30 yards down the field. It, he doesn't make, he doesn't get completed, but that throw was so close to being right on the money in the face of the defense. I, I the, the fact he even attempted this throw was very impressive. It also could have been very stupid, but you could tell in this game, Stroud knew he was going to have to make some plays for them to beat this Georgia defense, and I I love the aggressiveness he showed. He 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 feared nothing in this game. Uh, the other thing, and I already mentioned Burrow in terms of you know the way Stroud might be able to use his legs at the next level. I I don't think he is as good as Burrow at doing that. Let me be clear; it's more of just kind of the archetype of player that I hope. The other thing that reminds me of Burrow in the way he plays, and again, I think Burrow is way better than him. I, I'm not trying to say that he's going to be on that level. Is Stroud has the my guys are better than yours, Gene. And you saw at LSU, Joe Burrow was perfectly willing to just throw up, you know, 50-50 balls that really turn into 80-20 balls when they're located perfectly and the receivers are as good as they are. Burrow still takes advantage of this in the NFL with T. Higgins and Jamar Chase. And Stroud has that same ability. You know, Ohio State has this great receiving core with you know, Marvin Harrison Jr., Emeka Ibuka, Julian Fleming, you know, they they have this great receiving court and Stroud has the ability to take advantage of it because he is able to locate these 50-50 balls, give his receivers a chance to go make a play, and it really helped the Ohio State offense. Again, you know, for Georgia, as the game went on, more and more players for them were able to get involved. They had 10 different players record a catch, and I want to go through a little bit about those receivers specifically um, that, that made a catch. Receivers and tight ends that made a catch. You had Arian Smith. He's a four-star recruit. He was a top 60 player. Brock Bowers, four-star recruit, top 110 player. A.D. Mitchell, four-star recruit, top 400 player. Karis Jackson, four-star recruit, top 130 player. Marcus Rosemey Jackson, four-star recruit, top 60 player. Dominic Blaylock, four-star recruit, top 40 player. Dejan, um, and then Dejan Edwards, four-star recruit, top 40 player. Darnell Washington, five-star recruit, top 25 player. And then Lad McConkey is the last one as a three-star recruit. That is just ridiculous. I mean, the level of talent that they have in terms of depth on this offense just allows them to get so many players involved. Um, I'm pretty sure I misread one of those, but you get the picture. And with these guys, they're they're all willing to play in their specific roles. I mean, you think about a guy like Dominic Blaylock, who's a top 40 recruit. He had one catch for 20 yards. 
but Georgia's offense was humming all night. You know, different guys step up. Arian Smith has not been one of their, you know, top guys in terms of numbers throughout the season. Guys like Brock Bowers, um, Lad McConkey have been more effective throughout the year, but he steps up. He has three catches for 129 yards. So the the versatility of this Georgia offense, the amount of players they have that can contribute is really impressive for them. And overall, too, it was a great game for Kirby. Um, I, I'm sure a lot of you saw the timeout he called on the punt where Ohio State lines up in kind of a weird alignment. Looks like it's going to be a fake. The booth whistles down and says, hey, we something's up here. We don't know what's going on. He immediately goes over, calls the timeout. That saves a fourth down conversion that Ohio State likely would have gotten. I mean, they, they would have gotten it. You saw the play happen. And instead, Ohio State has to punt the ball back to Georgia. Georgia takes advantage, and that helps them along the way when they're coming back. And the other thing that did not get us talked about as much, but I, I would also was a huge fan of, on this comeback, you know, it's not the most difficult, difficult call in the world. On fourth and six, when they're down 14 with 12 minutes left, they're down, you know, deep in the red zone. Kirby Smart is willing to go for it. And you might say, well, yeah, that's the obvious call. There are other coaches in that situation that would have kicked a field goal. And I'm not saying it's a ton of coaches, but Kirby is not the most risk-taking, aggressive guy. And so I thought that was also a great call, leads to a touchdown, helps them complete the comeback. Later on in the fourth quarter, you really saw Stroud have to use his legs a lot. The O-line started to wear down. He had lost Marvin Harrison Jr. And he he at that point, he had a lot of uh, creation to do by himself, but he did that. He, he was awesome even in the fourth quarter. I was really impressed with him overall, even changing the way he had to play as the game evolved. And we get down to the second to last time that Ohio State has the ball. They're up three. They drive down. They're close to um, getting into the red zone. It's third and 17. If you go back and watch the replay of that play, Stroud has a chance to make a throw to a receiver over the middle of the field. It would have been a really difficult throw. He would have been getting hit as he threw. But when you look back now and you understand what happened with Georgia going straight down the field and scoring – he might wish he had that one back. He might have wished he attempted that throw because Ohio State settles for the field goal. They get up six, and you know what happened from there. Setson Bennett was amazing on the last drive. I know I've kind of dogged on him so far. The last drive, he was amazing. He drove a throw in a tight window to Brock Bowers. He had a great throw downfield to Lad McConkey on a free play. They ended up not converting into anything, but it was a great throw. He layered a throw to Kiaris Jackson um, in his next attempt. Perfect throw to set up the touchdown to A.D. Mitchell that was also perfectly executed by him. It was one of the cleanest drives that he's played in his career. Great job by him stepping up in that moment. They needed him there, especially because it was there was not much time left. They had to air the ball out, and he executed perfectly on that last drive. And that leads us to the Ohio State final drive. C.J. Stroud with the big run to get into Georgia territory. And one of the things that the most people um, you know, freaked out about this game was the Ryan Day call to run the ball on first down after picking up that big gain. I don't love the run call. Um, I don't I don't think it was the right call. However, I don't think this was him getting conservative. And the reason I say that is because, first of all, um I don't think that's how I don't think that's how Ryan Day coaches. I just don't think that's the type of coach he is. I don't think that's how he makes his decisions. Also, 
the fact that he immediately threw the ball on second and third down after that indicate to me that if you were getting conservative, if you were trying to push for a couple more yards and that was it, if that was really just your goal, I feel like you would probably try to do that again on second and third down because at that point you're even you're taking even more of a risk because it's all or nothing at that point. You have less chances to make that happen. So I, I don't think he was just getting conservative. I think he thought, okay, they might expect to pass here. I can maybe pick up five easy yards. That puts us in a much safer position for the field goal. And then, you know, our whole playbook's open. We can run the ball if we want. We can throw the ball down fit if we want, maybe get into it where it's a chip shot. I don't think he was thinking, all right, I just need like two yards. That's all I'm hoping for. Let's just run the ball. Uh, But the reason I don't love the run call is just because that's not who you are. The whole game, CJ Stroud had been the guy. He had been the guy creating for you. He had been the guy. He had been part of your best running game as well. And so, I'm just not a fan there of taking the ball out of your best player's hands, and especially when they had been effective throughout the game. Now, I like I said, I don't think he got conservative, but I still don't agree with the call. I think I probably would just leave the ball in C.J. Stroud's hands, especially because with him, you know, a lot of coaches in that situation, they want to run the ball, one, because they don't want to take a sack. They don't want to lose yardage. They don't want to get even further out of field goal range. However, I, I, I mean, there's always a chance for something bad to happen. If there's anybody I trust not to take a sack, it's C.J. Stroud. He can get the ball out. He was mobile in that game, much more mobile than we anticipated. So I I would have liked to have seen Ryan Day put his trust in his quarterback there, but I also don't think this was something where, you know, he was cowardly or he, he chose not to compete there towards the end of the game. So we know what happens as the clock strikes midnight. The field goal is completely botched and that's the game Georgia moves on to the national championship so those are kind of my notes from the game now let's get a little bit big picture so first um why was this game closer why was this game closer than people expected Uh, I think there were a lot of people that thought you know look at what happened to to Michigan there to the Michigan game when Ohio State played Michigan Michigan hits on some explosive plays. They start running it down Ohio State's throat, and that's the game. Nothing nothing Ohio State can do. They're not physical. They're going to get physically dominated against Georgia. So what happened? Why was it not? Why did it not turn out that way? Um, I thought Ohio State was going to win this game. You know, I don't know. I feel like they might have played better. I feel like they might have played good enough to win. But I think the biggest reason why Ohio State was able to hang in this game, why they were able to compete with Georgia and honestly, it was purely from an offensive standpoint. It's not like the Ohio State defense did a ton to slow it on Georgia, even though they, you know, they did get the interception. They didn't make it super easy on Stetson Bennett. It was because we've seen how you beat Georgia at this point, and it's by having elite wide receiver talent and a great quarterback. If you look at the last four losses that Georgia has had, it was 2021 Bama. Okay, well, who was on that team? Let's see. Bryce Young, Jamison Williams, John Mechie. Yeah, they were, they were decent. All right, how about 2020 Bama? Mac Jones, Devontae Smith. Yeah, they were all, all right. John, John Mechie again. How about 2020 Florida? Kyle Trask, Kyle Pitts, Kadarius Toney. They were decent. What about 2019 LSU? Joe Burrow, Jamar Chase, Justin Jefferson. I mean, the, the teams that beat Georgia don't just have good quarterbacks, don't just have good talent. They have great talent. And that's what this Ohio State team has. So yeah, did did they end up winning the game? No, but the reason they were able to keep this game competitive, the reason that you can even make an argument that they outplayed Georgia in this game was because they have the receiving talent to score on Georgia's defense. And there there comes a point, in, in, especially in college football, where 
there's only so much a defense can do. If an offense is humming on all cylinders, there, there, it just seems like the offense is going to win out at this point at where we are with college football. And I think that's why this is really the only way to to give yourself a real chance to just outplay Georgia. Uh, you might beat Georgia. There, there's definitely ways to beat Georgia. But the, the way to outplay them is elite quarterbacks and elite receivers. And I think Ohio State was able to do that. However, Georgia still comes back and gets the win. They got whatever they wanted offensively. Their defense did just enough. They made it... Uh, as much as Stroud was exceptional, they didn't make it super easy on him. They made him work for everything. And I I really think that Georgia does deserve a lot of credit from adapting their offense into a much more modern style over the past, you know, four or five years. This offense did not look like this four or five years ago. They they've kept the power run stuff, but they've added so much more creativity in the passing game and the short look in the short passing game and the screens and the play action stuff and it just allows their offense to be complete um, they, they can do whatever they want on that side of the ball uh, the last takeaway from this game specifically um, and, and I think it goes into a larger discussion about the player is Stetson Bennett uh, you saw a lot of people after the game saying you know what more do you need to see from Stetson Bennett before you believe this guy is one of the all-time greats what what more do you need to see before you know, you finally agree that this guy deserves to be in the Heisman conversation, that this guy belongs in the conversation with some of the best quarterbacks in college football. And I guess my response to that, because obviously I still don't view him that way. If you've listened so far, you probably can figure that out, is I'm not sure I can name another team in the country where I can tell you the things that happened in that game and how I felt about the way he played, especially in the first half, and then tell you, oh yeah, they're down 28-24 at halftime. By the time I think Stetson Bennett played good in the game, I I, I was trying to track this as I went through and watched the game. At what point from then on did I feel like Stetson Bennett played well? From what point in the game did I think, okay, from this point on, he was very good. It was when the game was 38-33. to I thought he had a really good throw on the two-point conversion. And from then on, he was great. You know what doesn't usually happen? You get to 38-33 to without good quarterback play. That just does not happen. Setson Bennett is a great story. He's one of the best stories in college football history. Uh, a guy going to Georgia and then Juco walking back on, you know, making... It, it, it's a ridiculous story what has happened. That does not change what happens on the field. And... This is something, this discussion happens a lot in the NFL. I think it holds true here. It's it's very difficult to do it, but I think you have to really try to separate the talent on the field that Georgia has, the offensive scheme that they have, which is one of the best in college football, from the player itself. And I think if you watch the games, if you look at what he does, it's really hard to put him up in that top tier of quarterbacks. And I will say, I want to be clear. He's a good quarterback. He has re- he has good traits. He's very decisive. He's mobile. He's accurate. Like he's not a bad quarterback. This is not a bum. But I have a really hard time putting him in that top tier because when you look at the when he's I, I think the biggest test for a guy and you can see the supporting cast is when he's not playing well, what happens? And when he's not playing well, the offense scores twenty four points and a half. So that's what I have to say about the Stetson Bennett stuff. Um, great story. Good player. Um, he he does exactly what this Georgia offense needs him to do. 
But there's, I think there's a lot of guys that could probably do what this Georgia offense needs him to do. So moving on to big picture here, we'll start with Georgia since we just talked about Stetson Bennett. They took a punch to the face and they got right back up. Um, their talent prevailed. Uh, everything Kirby Smart has built in this program seems to always show up. It, it just feels like every big game, this team is competitive. They never give up. They never um, concede. And they always put themselves in a position to win the game late. Um it's just a credit to the program they've built. It's a credit to the talent they acquired that it seems like no matter what happens, they've always got a guy ready to go to fill any spot they need. Um, so Georgia, I mean, what more can you say about them? They're, they're, the, they're the dynasty in college football right now. Uh, Ohio State, big picture-wise, I think you have to hang your heads high. Um, after getting dominated by Michigan 45-23 in the game, in the most, you know, in what's, what some crazy Ohio State fans probably think is the most important game of the season— they responded. The offense looked significantly better. They were able to do whatever they wanted against whatever they wanted against Georgia offensively, and I think even the defense was much more competitive. Um, was much more buttoned up, even if the the scoring total doesn't necessarily look too much different. They did have the one long touchdown that allowed Georgia to cut the lead down to three pretty quickly in the fourth quarter. That was a but it was just a, a guy just slipped and fell. Um, there weren't as many coverage busts as against Michigan. I thought they made improvements on that side of the ball. I thought Ryan Day called a pretty good game. There's no reason to be concerned about this program whatsoever moving forward. Now, does that mean they're going to win a national championship? No, it's really hard to win a national championship. But this team, you know, they didn't have the number one recruiting class this year. They still did pretty well in recruiting. They have one of the best offensive systems in all of college football. Their receiving talent is second to none. Um, there's no reason to be concerned about this team whatsoever going into the future. Um, Michigan does present a tough matchup for them, and that's probably not going to change here in the near future. But overall, this program's in a great spot. And you have to be feeling even, you know, it's I think it's heartbreak and encouragement at the same time because there had to be a little bit of uh, doubt in the back of your head as an Ohio State fan, even as somebody that thought Ohio State was going to win this game. Like, there's a chance Georgia just comes out and punches them in the mouth and they fold like that. That was, that was, there was a possibility of that. Um, the fact that that didn't happen and you played that well is really impressive. It's also really discouraging because you probably feel like you're about to play away from winning a national championship game right now. I mean, if that kick goes in, you, you know, you probably win the national championship. So it, it's a tough spot to be in, but I think overall it's a good sign for the health of your program, how you played now. We're going to do a little quick national championship preview here. This is by far going to be the shortest part of the show today. The first thing I want to talk about is just what if TCU wins? Like, what does this mean for college football? What is the significance of this? So I think the easiest way for me to contextualize this and how ridiculous this would be for college football if TCU wins is if you look at the preseason odds for the national title. So quick little education on the way those odds are calculated. So if a team is plus 100, uh, that means you would have to put down $100 to make $100. So you get $200 back if that team won. Um, uh, Some of the more recent national championship winners had odds. So of Georgia's of last year was plus 600. So if you bet $100, you won 600 when Georgia won the national championship. Alabama's in 2020 was plus 300. Um, 2019 LSU's was plus 2,500. So they were a little bit longer of a shot to win. You know, not as many people expected LSU to come in to that season and be as dominant as they were. It was more of a little more of a one season wonder. 2014 Ohio State was plus 4,000. They went through 
uh, multiple quarterback changes that year. Uh, it was a long, tumultuous year, but they got the running game going at the end. Ezekiel Elliott was dominant. They won the national championship as plus 4,000. Now, the longest odds in the past decade, two decades were Auburn in 2010 at plus 5,000. So that's the Cam Newton year. You didn't have a full realization on how amazing Cam Newton was going to be at that point, and he was transformative that year. He probably, that's probably the the worst roster to win a national championship in the past couple of decades, but Cam Newton was so transcendent. He was so dominant as a player that they, they ended up winning the national championship, and it was really hard to predict how good he was going to be that year. So, the, okay, so... So we go through all those, right? Plus five thousand. That's the that's the longest shot of any team. So take a guess. Think in your head right now as you're listening. What do you think TCU's preseason odds were? They were plus two hundred thousand. So they were forty times longer than any other national champion that we have had in recent college football history. Um, if they win this national championship, I mean, this is this is one of the biggest sports upsets, one of the biggest sports underdog stories in history of sports, not just college football, in history. Um, this this is what happens in the NCAA tournament. This is what happens, you know, in in a sport where outcomes are random. This is not what happens in college football when the top five or six teams have all of the talent and you know every year yeah, there's probably four or five teams that can win the national championship. We say that every year. That's not true this year. TCU came in. They are in that group this year. And do I think TCU speak? Now we'll get into the game specifically here. Do I think TCU is going to win this game? No, but I I think they can. I, I think there is a road in which they can. And again, we talked about what is the blueprint to beat Georgia? It's elite wide receivers and an elite quarterback. Max Duggan, if he plays like he did against Michigan, you have that box checked. And the elite wide receivers thing, I think it's more of a question mark because you have you have the elite wide receiver. You have one of the best wide receivers in all of college football, maybe the best in Quentin Johnson. You have that. But I don't know what those other guys will do. Uh, not to say that they're bad players, but obviously they're not on the same level as those other teams that I mentioned, the LSUs, the Bama, the Floridas, the teams that have been able to beat Georgia. That to me is the key in the game. If TCU can get a couple other pass-catching weapons going, I think they have a real chance in this game. Um, Duggan has the mobility needed against this Georgia defense to buy time to create. I think the TCU offensive line uh, played a lot better than people expected against uh, against Michigan, which is a good sign against Georgia because you're going to have to have that. Now, the problem is I have no idea how they're going to get a stop in this game. Like, it just I have no idea because really the, the reason that they were able to get some stops against Michigan was because um, they sold out on the run game. They got some stops. McCarthy um, wasn't great early. Um, once Michigan got the play-action game going, got the deep passing game going, it, it was pretty much wide open from there. Georgia's not going to take that long to get going. They have too much offensive talent. Bennett executes at too high of a level. And Munkin is going to be more versatile than Michigan was offensively. He just is. He's just a better play caller. So they have to figure out the play-action stuff. We talked about the play-action stats earlier for Michigan. If that does not get figured out, it could get ugly. I I think TCU will 
probably stay within the 13 and a half point spread um, just because they'll score enough to do it. Um, I would be really surprised if they won this game. I just, I think this is going to be a game where they can hang around, but that it feels like Georgia's in control throughout. And I I do think the game will probably go over the total of 62 and a half. I feel like both offenses will be able to score. Um, the biggest X factor in this game to me is what can TCU get out of their non-Quentin Johnson wide receivers? If that happens, if they can start getting some production and it opens up the passing game, this could be a shootout. I think it could be a great game. But if they can't get much out of the other guys, if Georgia's able to focus a lot of their attention on Quentin Johnson, I think that's when you see the TCU offense start to stagnate. And so we'll, we'll see what happens in that game. I'm really excited for it. I think, you know, TCU, I think, does have a chance. And yeah, hopefully, I mean, it would be awesome if they won. I mean, like I said, the the, the long shot odds would be ridiculous. It'd be a great story. Either way, you're going to have a quarterback that's a national champion. You know, Bennett for a second time, dug it for a first, dug in for a first time. That's a crazy underdog story. Bennett with the you know the walk on, the JUCO transfer, dug in a guy that pretty much lost the job going into the season and then won it back. Um, didn't transfer, stays there, uh, battles it out, and could end up being a national champion. So really looking forward to Monday night. Um, I hope you all enjoyed this episode and a recap of the two playoff games and that, you know, you learn something about the games or um, have something to watch for in the national championship. Um, thanks for listening and we'll catch you next time.